Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen, and from the sound of my voice, obviously, I am not Carmen LaBerge, who is away today. (laughs) Definitely not Carmen LaBerge. That's the voice of Paul Perot here in studio, the producer of Mornings with Carmen, and I am Peter Capstan. Delighted to be with all of you again this morning as I look at the board and see all the different cities around our country. Christians in different parts uh, of the United States of America, listening maybe through terrestrial radio, and of course, we've got a number of people all around the world listening through the app. Uh, that you can go and check out at faithradio.com as well and download on your phone and listen that way. Paul, it sure is great always to gather together with believers like this in the morning, whether people are getting up and starting with a cup of coffee, whether they're already driving to work, uh, kids off to school. It's just a great way to start the day. It is a great way, and so we thank them for joining us. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I were chatting, chatting before the show just a little bit about Lent, and you and I both grew up Catholic, and mm-hmm. so we practiced Lent to some degree growing yeah. up. I think oh, I had I did. a pretty limited understanding, but did you do anything this year for Ash Wednesday, or now that we're a week into Lent, is there something going on in sort of your practices there? Well, my wife and I, we are doing some Lenten, specifically Lenten uh, devotionals. Uh, yeah. Ash Rita Choo Choo, her book, we talked about that on Carmen's show a few weeks back, right. and uh, we're going through that, and it's so far been really, really good. Yeah, you know, I find it a really helpful practice. We were circling together as a family here this last week, and we actually had to practice uh, Ash Sunday because we missed uh, Ash Wednesday as a family. But we did that, and we came around a passage. And as you're listening this morning, too, uh, maybe it's helpful to think about some of these things as you start your day. But it's a passage from Matthew 16 in which Jesus says this to his disciples in the 24th verse. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves <clears throat> and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And my wife, Hallie, made, I thought, what was a really insightful comment at that time that sort of stayed with me as we were dealing with the algebra of Jesus's kingdom here, Mm -hmm. where to find you must lose and to lose you must find and kind of this backwards, upside down way compared to the values of the world. And she said, you know, really the difference here is do we look at our lives and the things in our lives as source or do we look at them as gift? Mm. And it was actually a really helpful way. And I was thinking about some of the different things that are actually gifts in my life, but I don't know when it happens, but I start hanging on to them pretty tight and they pretty quickly become source and mm-hmm. they become what I turn to as my source of well-being or peace. And so then the circumstances, I'm blown, a while, I'm blown around all the time by circumstances day to day when I'm holding on to things as source. And so we took those things, wrote them down on a piece of paper, burned them, and then we used them as the ashes. But I just wow. thought, yeah, it was really a sweet time okay. to get in on all of our kids wrote some things down and they burned them as well. But I find even a week into this, Paul, how easy it is to begin to cling on stuff mm-hmm. again, and it becomes source rather than gift. Now, you got me thinking about C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters, because mm. one of the letters between, what is it, Wormwood, and, yes. uh, has, to deal, has to do with Christians enjoying things, but enjoying them as gift instead of, not source, but in other words, idolizing that item. Yes. Um, instead of is, is receiving it as a gift from his God. 
And so very similar train of thought. That is a similar train of thought. And of course, it leads us into our first conversation this morning with Pastor Daryl Crouch as well, who's going to be joining us from Tennessee. And he's sort of at ground zero where many of these tornadoes devastated Nashville area in the last couple of days. And it's one of these great revealers when tragedies like this happen in our lives on any different kind of level is that we really aren't made for this world at the end of the day, that there is gift to enjoy. But if we cling to this world as source, it gets to be really troubling because things are just that difficult. So we're going to be joined next year mornings with Carmen, with Daryl Crouch, who is a pastor of Green Hill Church. Stay with us. More to come. Time to welcome Daryl Crouch into the show, talk a little bit about the events that are happening down in Nashville, Tennessee, and the devastation of the tornadoes there. But Daryl, I have to tell you that James Taylor walk-in music like that, that takes me back. My father-in-law, of all people, used to just dance around the house to James Taylor all the time. So is this your guy? Is this how you start your mornings? Well, it uh, is not the way I start my mornings, and I don't dance around the house. The family (laughs) would not go for that at all. But uh, when I'm by myself uh, driving down the road, it's often my playlist, yeah. Well, it certainly is a pretty peaceful way to start the morning. Uh, Glad you're with us. And tell us a little bit about what you're seeing down in Tennessee just now 24, 36 hours after the devastation. Yeah, that's the the right word. It's devastating. It really is. We have uh, at least four schools that are uh, largely destroyed. Two of those are public schools uh, with uh, about 1,600 kids that are displaced. We have many homes that are destroyed. Uh, We think, I talked to a city official late last night, he thinks approximately 200 families here in our city alone, not including our county, but in our city alone, have been impacted or displaced. And uh, many of those homes are destroyed. We have one church family in in my church church family whose home was destroyed and uh, others that are affected and businesses and um, other other entities around the town, all of us are affected, and uh, we are in the middle of it. And Daryl, I don't know that I know the, the weather patterns in the Tennessee area, if this is an incredibly unusual time for storms, and also, too, if it was an unusual ferocity of the storms. Was this completely unexpected? Did, did people see it coming at all? I really do think it was unexpected, by and large. We knew that the storms were coming, that they were predicting uh, high winds and hail uh, earlier or late in the afternoon on Tuesday, or excuse me, Monday afternoon. But um, when we went to bed last uh, on that night, we, we knew that there could be some storms coming and that we'd probably get uh, have to get out of bed. But we didn't, we, we didn't go to bed expecting tornado, that kind of tornadic activity. And, and the tornado uh, stayed on the ground for a very long time, mm. um, over an hour, it wow. seems, uh, if we if the reports are accurate. And so it, it um, and it's not super common. Uh, our city manager um, shared with me yesterday that uh, he, he's been he's been here for a very long time. And he's gone through four four storms like this. He's never seen anything uh, as bad as this. Our mayor said the same thing. He it's just it's just bad. There's no no way around that. And it's uh, there's a lot of help happening now, but uh, the the cleanup and the recovery is going to take months. Yeah, my understanding is is that often just the heat that's generated from a major city prevents a tornado from coming through heavily populated areas. But in this case, it really was a pretty devastating time. And my understanding is, Daryl, that you're part of a network of churches now that is gathering together voluntarily to help in the cleanup and the restoration process. 
Sure. We we have a coalition of churches called Everyone's Wilson. Uh, I've talked to Carmen a little bit about it, and she's uh, pretty pumped about that. And uh, I'm grateful for her her encouragement. But uh, Everyone's Wilson is just a coalition of gospel-driven churches who, who want to partner for the welfare of the city. And so we're doing a number of things. But uh, on days like uh, yesterday, uh, those relationships really meant a lot. And so there's churches and pa- pastors and churches coming together to serve. And uh, one of the one of the churches impacted um, by the storm and right in the middle of it was First Baptist Church here in Mount Juliet. And so they sustained a lot of damage and they have a Christian school, Mount Juliet Christian Academy, and they sustained enormous damage. So a lot of our folks were there yesterday afternoon helping them clean up and uh, cut trees and clean off debris and, and all the rest. So so the, there's immediate help that's happening, but we really think that the big help and the uh, will be over over time. And so we're I'll meet with a city leader this morning um, and uh, we'll we'll begin coordinating the best we can to uh, to mobilize our churches and and other folks who want to serve uh, to uh, to seek the welfare of our city and just help help uh, help our neighbors work through this the season. And Daryl, you talk about working with other churches for the welfare of the city. And I know, obviously, you're a pastor of a church, and churches tend to have theological distinctives that separate them from other churches. And you don't necessarily paper over those differences when you're working together. But tell me a little bit about what it's like to be working with other churches who may have very different theological distinctives than you do, and yet you're coming together for the common good. What is that like in the process, working with other pastors, other churches, other people that otherwise normally you wouldn't share worship time with? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I think it's new to a lot of folks that have been more tribal and uh, more uh, kind of we we stay to our own people, our own our own uh, networks, and so on. It has been refreshing, Peter. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm just I cannot I cannot tell you how encouraging it's been. We we don't all believe the exact same things. We're all Jesus people. We're all gospel people. We're we're all um, uh, people who uh, look to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. But we do have some distinctives that are that are important to us, and so we we would say it this way. And I'm not the first one to say this, but uh, we would say we we don't all believe the same things, but we all care about the same things. Mm. So we rally around those things that we care about, and we we care about kids, and we care about families, and we care about issues of hunger, and we care about issues of addiction and and uh, alcoholism, and we care about safety issues, and we care about education, and so. We're rallying around those four areas, and uh, uh, we can do that with a great deal of freedom and knowing that uh, we still love the local church. I'm a pastor of a local church, and uh, my friends are pastoring other churches. They would not hire me on their staff. I would not <laughs> hire them on, the, on our, our staff. We're just different. We just have different uh, convictions about a few things that are important, and we're happy to talk about those things. But one of the wonderful things about it, Peter, is that we have— I think our I think the average Joe Christian, if whoever that is, uh, really is weary of tribalism and weary of division. And I think when our church members see us uh, loving one another and see pastors cheering for one another on social media, uh, see us praying together and seeing us working together, I th- I think it looks a lot more like heaven. And I think people long for that. And I think uh, by uh, Jesus was really big on that in John 17. He said, listen, you're, you're going to be, they're going to believe that, that my father sent me by the way that you love one another. And, um, I, I think putting a, a prime, making that a prime, putting that in a prime position, excuse me, is uh, really important 
for us as we think about advancing or being a part of Jesus advancing his kingdom on earth. You know, Daryl, when you give us that little picture of heaven, too, it just uh, calls to mind that passage where at the end of it all, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is a coming together in those moments beyond our differences where we all acknowledge the same Savior. So it's the voice of Daryl Crouch, pastor of Green Hill Church, who's at Ground Zero in the Tennessee area, dealing with some of the devastation left behind by the tornadoes. And when we come back from break, Daryl and I are going to talk a little bit about when these unexpected, painful things happen in our lives and how we can deal with them and how we can move forward. So stay with us here. More to come on Mornings with Carmen. It is about 20 minutes past the top of the hour. We're chatting with Pastor Daryl Crouch about some of the devastation happening with the tornadoes in Tennessee. And Daryl, just off air a minute ago, you and I and Paul were chatting a little bit about the idea that it does really take a wee bit of theological humility to work across different church divides like this. It really does. I think we we really care about theology. We are we want to be theology wonks, if that's the right word. We <laughs> we care we care about being faithful to the to the scripture and uh, handling well the the Bible. And so we don't take that lightly. We just know also that as much as we think we're right about these secondary issues, we there, we could be wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we could get to heaven and find out we weren't exactly right about everything. And so we want to be very careful that we, we cling tightly to the core of our faith, uh, but um, uh, don't allow the secondary issues to divide us. It's just uh, not worth it. And uh, love is really a bigger a priority. And um, uh, even Paul, Jesus, th- they all told us that uh, love uh, champions all this other. And so I-, I think if we can learn to love our neighbors, uh, that'll go a long way. And that does require a lot of humility mm. and to say that uh, I'm going to love you with an open hand and we'll let God figure out these other issues. Yeah, and especially in a time like this where love is required, that moving towards other people's wholeness when they've been devastated by a sudden loss. And Daryl, if if you and I could rewind ourselves a week ago, I'm sure that there wasn't any sense of anticipation that something like this would happen. And the people who have lost their lives and, of course, the family members and friends left behind a a week ago, nobody would have anticipated this. And, And it speaks to the fact that pain is almost always sudden and tragic and it really disorients us. And so, how do you begin to pick up the pieces when you, when there's been a, a devastating moment like this, whether it's something like this or maybe a divorce or uh, a child uh, leaves the home and, and sort of a huff, whatever it happens to be, how do you begin to pick up the pieces? Well, I think it's hard, and I think we've got to uh, begin there that uh, this is hard. This is not um, a small thing, and when we lose, we we often feel it very deeply. I remember you and I were talking about earlier being young pastors. I remember as a young pastor kind of throwing off on the idea. I remember preaching a sermon and and saying something about our houses burning down or something and, and how it shouldn't matter, you know, some sort of, you know, pious uh, in the sky kind of thing that, that our possessions have no bearing on us. And, and certainly we shouldn't be materialistic and all the rest. But, but uh, when we lose our home, when we lose our possessions, when we lose those things, uh, those, those, those experiences uh, create deep wounds in us. And so mm. I think to say that it's hard is okay. I think it's not, there's nothing super spiritual about saying it's no big deal. That's not true. Uh, sin and suffering and loss, uh, they, they're they all big deals. And so I think empathy goes a very long way. And just coming beside people and saying that we love you and we care about you 
and we don't have all the answers. If we did have the answers, I don't know how much comfort they would provide, frankly. Mm. And um, I, I think sometimes we've put a premium on understanding. Like we think if we understood everything, that would make it all better. I'm not sure that's the case. I think God has called us to trust him. Yeah. And um, so I think that that moving away from uh, certainly we want to understand all that we can, but uh, walking by faith and not by sight is really our call during these days. And but uh, but empathy, I think, is our first response. Yeah, and you bring up such an important point that uh, that famous Proverbs passage where it says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not into your own understanding." And and sort of the gateway into the kingdom when the life of God begins to pour into us is that move of trust and surrender, often in these places of difficulty. And Daryl, I, I would suggest too that <clears throat> thinking about our actual home, right when our when our earthly homes are devastated like this. But one part of it is a recognition that that our actual home is the home that is to come that Jesus is preparing for us even as we speak and and remembering that gosh anything in this life is transient and temporary. Oh, that's right. And and Paul was really the Apostle Paul uh, really uh, drilled in on this in Second Corinthians chapter four. He says, you know, though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory. And so I think and so then he says our focus then should not be on what's seen, but what's unseen. And so I think knowing where our hope is Mm. uh, determines where our vision is and where what we look to and what we cling to in these moments of tragedy. Daryl, we got a couple minutes left here. I'm assuming, obviously, there's people impacted deeply that are not believers and the church coming into this time and space. Is there a way in which you specifically are thinking we can really bear witness to the kingdom in these moments of devastation? Yeah, I think uh, certainly praying. And then we have been overwhelmed by every pastor I know, every city leader that I know here, uh, every family that I know here have been overwhelmed by by. Um, encouragement uh, text and messages and social media posts and all the rest that uh, say we're praying for you. And that makes all the difference. Uh, and then certainly there's going to be an aftermath of restoration and recovery. So financial giving is really important. People want to give. People have reached out to me from other places around the country. How can we help? And so at everyone's.org, uh, you can go there and I'm sorry, everyoneswilson.org you can go there and click the donate button and uh, be a part of what God's doing here to show his love to our community. Yeah, it's part of the beauty of the kingdom, isn't it, is that it's not geographically located. And so certainly these events in Tennessee are located in Tennessee, but believers from all over the country and the world can can gather together and help in these situations, if not physically, even just from a financial standpoint, to help those who are doing the physical and and pastoral and emotional cleanup. So, Daryl, give us one more time where people can give if they're listening this morning. Yeah, everyone's Wilson. That's one word, no apostrophes. Everyone's Wilson. Wilson's our county. So everyone'swilson.org. And uh, scroll down just a little bit, and there's a donate button that'll be really clear. And uh, we would love for you to come beside us. That's great stuff. Daryl, thanks for joining us this morning, giving us a firsthand look, and even some of the pastoral care and ministry and encouragement on behalf of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks, Peter. It's been great. We'll take a short break here on Mornings with Carmen. And when we come back for the second half of Hour One, we'll be joined by Hunter Baker. And Hunter and I are going to talk a little bit about the somewhat surprising results from Super Tuesday last night within the Democratic Party.
What an encouraging way to start the morning with Daryl Crouch, just somebody who is manifesting the hands and the feet and the face of Jesus in a community that desperately needs it right now. And Paul, that really, obviously he believes strongly in Mm -hmm. Jesus as Savior and the only way and, and the Lord of our life. And yet what he's suggesting is that in these moments, the love of God's kingdom that actually comes from God, this idea of a tenderhearted, passionate affection that never leaves nor forsakes and is willing to give for the sake of another's wholeness. They're really doing the love of God's kingdom in this moment that Mm -hmm. shines Jesus, maybe even without words sometimes. Yes, really. And really at this point, a lot of people... When they're going through the hard times, they're not asking, okay, what are your what are your four points on this right. issue talking? It's like, does Jesus care? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And that's what they need to hear. Well, it's so true. And and so this is not about papering over differences necessarily. What it really is is what do we lead with? Mm-hmm. And they are leading with care and compassion and really appreciate the ministry. And so it was everyoneswilson.org. Do I have that right, Paul? Where people yes, can get everyoneswilson.org. Yeah, there's a donate button there. And again, as believers all around the country, all around the world, it is a place that we can gather together and support our brothers and sisters that are doing the ministry of God's kingdom there. Well, up next here in just a minute, we'll be joined by Hunter Baker, regular contributor to the show. Hunter is professor of political science at Union University, and we are going to chat a little bit about the results of Super Tuesday last night, the resurgence of Joe Biden, and also talk a little bit about socialism and what's happening with Bernie Sanders. Had some interesting conversations in my class of young people yesterday and Christian social ethics about socialism. And indeed, there is some intrigue on that subject among the young people in our country. Ever wonder if God's truly working in your kids? Or sometimes, does it feel like He's overlooked you? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Let me offer you some fresh perspective. Maybe God is answering your prayers right now, yet it doesn't feel like it. But the teen that's spiraling out of control in your home could be the tool God uses to grow your faith. Perhaps the conflict you're facing right now is the intentional lesson God designed specifically for you and your kids. So, determine right now to watch for the answer to your prayers coming your way. Don't lose heart. I promise, God's answering prayers right in the midst of your struggle. There's more from Mark Gregston on the Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips from moms and dads when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Well, I don't know if that won't wake you up here on the 4th of March, early in the morning. I don't know what will. That is the music of Hunter Baker. Hunter, how did we pick this one to get us going in the morning? Uh, you know, I picked I picked some Christian song, and and uh, and Paul says we well, can have whatever you want, and I said, almost oh. whatever you want. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I, said I, I really like sabotage, so that's how we ended up here. Well, that definitely got me out of bed <laughs> this morning, to say the <laughs> least. And I, I, it was up pretty late last night, actually, too, because I was watching with some fair amount of interest the results coming in from Super Tuesday. And I'll tell you what, Hunter, if you would have told me two weeks ago when uh, Biden was just getting thumped and in Iowa and into uh, New Hampshire that he would have any kind of campaign left at all. Boy, I wouldn't have given you a nickel for that idea, and yet here we are. Uh, that's true, but and I have to say that, honestly, I cannot see how any of this is really to his credit. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, look, he a lot of the votes that he won yesterday uh, were in places where he had no organization, um, no real campaign. Um, I think that what has happened is, is that 
the Democrats recognized, they, they saw how Donald Trump was able to pull off uh, basically a hostile takeover of the Republican Party in 2016. You know, you have a single iconoclastic figure uh, who is able to attract a significant following <clears throat> and they can take over. And they saw that happening with Sanders. And basically, uh, you have sort of the Democratic capitalist versus the Democratic socialists. Mm. And they said, this is not going to happen. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm almost at the point of seeing that that plan as so complete that they're leaving Elizabeth Warren in to dilute Bernie Sanders' yeah. support. I'm not sure. We'll see if she drops out or not. Yeah, the political calculations going on, at least it seems like behind the scenes, are pretty intriguing at, at this moment. I, it sure seemed like a pretty orchestrated move to have Buttigieg step aside on a Sunday night and Klobuchar step aside on a Monday night and just before Super Tuesday and throw all of their support behind Biden. It, Boy... It kind of reeks in a different way of 2016 when Biden or when uh, Hillary Clinton was seen as sort of taking the party away from Bernie Sanders at that time. And so we're, we're two elections in a row where this is happening. Yeah. The big danger for the Democrats <clears throat> is that the uh, the Bernie supporters conclude that they are locked out on the Democratic side and that they choose to stay home. Mm. That would be. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and so then the calculus is always, well, where else do they have to go? But I suspect that there is – in some degree, and people will find this strange, that there is a base of support uh, between Bernie and Donald Trump that is somewhat fungible. Uh, I think that there's some people who kind of uh, have a view of protecting the blue-collar worker uh, who could potentially see Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders as their champion. Mm. And when we look forward, if Bernie Sanders' group does sort of get uh, alienated and maybe has to splinter off, is there ever any kind of situation we could see in the United States that is similar maybe to the United Kingdom that has multiple political parties associated with it? Because we were there in mid-December in uh, Scotland when they went through the election cycle, and there was multiple parties obviously running for office, and they have to build coalitions and alliances together. Is there any chance we ever see a splintered off third party that's legitimate in the United States? Well, it would just it would simply require uh, a series of changes, not at the constitutional level, because our constitution didn't really contemplate parties, um, but but in terms of uh, election laws, mm. in order to make it more possible for third parties to compete. Now, you know they can. Um, the Republican Party was a third party. Um, the Republican Party displaced the Whig Party. In U.S. politics, uh, back around the time of the Civil War, um, and the other thing that happens is, is that sometimes a third party can become so influential that one of the two main parties absorbs it and its priorities, mm. uh, which is clearly what Bernie Sanders was trying to do. He was he's trying to move the Democrats in a more explicitly socialist direction. A couple more thoughts on this, too, going back to the candidates themselves. Uh, when we look at the candidacy of Joe Biden, does it's hard to say, right? I mean, we're 10 months and nine months away from the election, but he doesn't seem, uh, at least to this point, somebody who is going to be able to sustain a run for office. And I don't know if his gaffes are simply just gaffes or if they are memory lapses or what it happens to be, but it seems like every day we see something new. Do you see him as a sustainable candidate on the Democratic side? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, basically, I, I don't think that um, that his that his key to victory is going to be outshining Donald Trump. Um, the proposition will be I'm the safe, steady hand. Right. I'm the 
Uh, I was with Barack Obama. I know what it means to be the president, and you won't be ashamed of me, and I won't do anything unpredictable, and it will be back to business as usual. I think Mm -hmm. that will be the pitch from him. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what he does moving forward. Uh, Turning to another candidate here that has certainly poured a lot of money, let's just say, into the election, and yet he got thumped pretty roundly last night. It's Michael Bloomberg. What do we see for him moving forward? Because there's at least some talk that maybe he's going to step aside, but he's also said if he does, he'll leave all of his big infrastructure behind to support whoever. Yeah, I wonder if he really means that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... uh... You know what? Uh, what Michael Bloomberg has done? That one of the uh, one of the Batman movies, uh, one of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, has a scene where uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker sets this gigantic mountain of money on fire. Yeah, uh, and that's what we have seen <laughs> with Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg basically has taken half a billion dollars or so and just set it ablaze. Um, he has learned that uh, a couple of things. A, you can't necessarily buy an election in, in U.S. politics. Um, B, the United States voter typically does not want a New York mayor for president of the United States, mm. not even the Democrats. Uh, they never they never get any traction, whether you're talking about Giuliani or Bloomberg or de Blasio or uh, I'm blanking on the the handsome New York maker mayor of the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, but he also tried the same. Uh, it just it's just not a fit. Yeah. And um, so yeah, he's it's amazing. My kids who are 14 and 17 and don't care about politics, despite my interests, uh, they both know who Mike Bloomberg is, hmm. and that's that's because the advertising campaign has been that complete. He has been everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, certainly pouring it into all the social media networks in ways we just simply haven't seen in the past. One more thought on Super Tuesday here, Hunter, and that is I know that Bloomberg has talked about his only route is to get to a contested convention. I don't remember ever seeing a contested convention, and nor do I understand necessarily what happens there. But maybe just in a couple of minutes or so, give us a sense of what would happen if we end up at that point. Well, yeah, you know, we used to have that used to be a much more typical uh, sort of a thing in a, in American politics is that you would uh, you would arrive at the convention. Um, a lot of the, a lot of people who weren't even necessarily serious candidates would run in their state so they could get their state's delegates um, and then roll into the convention with those delegates, which they would be able to trade uh, for some position in the administration or something like that. And and you're right, that hasn't been. Really, a significant feature of American politics for a long time. Mm. Um, you had you had Reagan, I think, come close um, to to uh, getting forward in the convention in 1976, uh, but but honestly, it's probably been since the early 60s. And so, what would happen though is that if if you didn't have the delegates, and and if somebody wasn't dominant, right? I mean, if somebody's dominant, I think the voters expect them to get it anyway. But uh, but if you don't have the delegates, then it's just simply a, a series of horse trading yeah. uh, that would go on, go on, you know, over three or four rounds until you have a uh, a nominee. 
Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to see over these next nine months. That's the voice of Hunter Baker, who is regularly part of the Mornings with Carmen show. And when we come back, Hunter, would love to get into more of the conversation around socialism. And especially I had some pretty interesting conversations with my young people in class yesterday in which we were comparing the believing community of the Book of Acts 2, where they were sharing possessions in common with ideas of socialism. And we'd love to get your take on that here next on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day for Carmen LeBurge, and we're chatting with Hunter Baker, who is in the political science area at Union University. And Hunter, I've got a passage of scripture here from Acts 2, and get your comment here in just a second on this, but it, it describes how the early Christian community was living their life together as the church. It says this, starting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts with sincere hearts, glad, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, Hunter, we're talking about an early socialist community here, right? <laughs> no, we're talking about an early church community. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a there was a great book. Oh gosh, it was a long time ago about Marxism as a Christian heresy. Uh, you know, Marxism is about um, forcible control and extraction of wealth. Hmm. Um, that is that is not what the early church is. It is a community of love, and um, you know, really, I view. Um, I view holding one's possessions loosely, um, having a a very uh, great willingness to share with others, to meet their needs, uh, to be part of the Christian life. Um, and if, if those things are missing, there's a question about the fruit, right? I mean, um, a lot of people think of church as a place to go to, to be entertained, right? You know, that they really mm-hmm. like the music or the, the pastor or something like that. But there's also a sense in which church is the place where you go to know people and to be known mm-hmm. and to, to see people's needs. And maybe you're the one who meets those needs. Uh, this is something that can happen within the, within the context of the church, but it's not, it's not some kind of a government program. Yeah, you hit that spot on, I think, that the difference between uh, a government socialistic program and the free free giving of the early church is simply that. It's the difference between a forced distribution that is legislated versus freely giving from the abundance of the heart. And that really is one of the more significant marks of believers is that they naturally begin to move towards those in need and don't hold terribly tightly to the possessions around them. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, and of course, taking that seriously opens up all kinds of questions about your life, right? Mm. In terms of uh, how big is that house? Uh, how fancy is that car? I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's like anything else in the Christian life. It's a stewardship question. Mm. Uh, and you just need to kind of be rigorously examining that and asking God what, what he would have you to do. Yeah, I remember rigorously examining that maybe in my early 30s and Hunter being at least somewhat embarrassed by the idea that, yeah, maybe I gave from time to time, but it felt just more like a moral obligation than a heart that was moved towards those in need. And there really is sort of a sense in which we need to cultivate and even ask God to cultivate a heart in us that sees the world through the lens that maybe he does, which obviously then is going to want to move towards those who are suffering and in need. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it's also a good reason for the church to be a highly mixed community, um, not only in terms of uh, race uh, or or nationality or something like that, but also in terms of uh, economic status. The church is a good place for people to know each other and their situation, and uh, people who have, uh, that's a good place for them to bless people who have needs. Yeah, I, my, we were talking earlier in the program, Paul and I were just about this season of Lent and something that my wife had, uh, Hallie, had suggested to me and to our kids is that there's a big difference between treating life as gift and treating those things in life as source and uh, how often I sort of attach myself to circumstances or possessions or successes or whatever it is as source as opposed to gift. And, and when it's more like a gift in your life, you can freely open your hands and begin to give to others. That's at least what I see in the early church. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, you know, you you hear story after story from people about how uh, their life changes after they begin tithing, things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to give anybody the prosperity gospel, uh, but I do think that it's a uh, an ordinary uh, part of the Christian life to be giving, um, and that that one will find that they are blessed. They're unexpectedly blessed. Yeah, and it, it certainly is a different way of life. And Hunter, I grew up in uh, some fairly wealthy suburbs of western Minneapolis uh, around Lake Minnetonka area. And what I found among the money and the wealth that was there is how often it felt very vacant and very hollow. And we just we pursue these things uh, so readily. And, and I think even some of the draw of socialism is that somebody who maybe is experiencing a have-not way of life understandably wants to experience a bit more prosperity. But every step we take that direction, it just leads to more hollowness and more vacantness it seems to me. Yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, socialism, to some extent, is uh, almost like an insurance uh, against what somebody might view as the accidents of life. Mm. Um, you know, and so a lot of times if you are a socialist, if you, you view somebody as wealthy uh, through either accident or uh, bad action, right? The, yeah. they, the only reason they are wealthy is because they did something bad. Uh, and you're seeking to use the government to correct that. Well, a couple more thoughts on this related to socialism in general. Pretty interesting that CNN and one of the major news people on CNN had a pretty profound critique of socialism, where you know CNN would be typically a bit more sympathetic towards socialism, but the idea of Scandinavian versions of socialism being able to be readily applied in our country, it doesn't really seem like the math holds up in that situation. Well, it's just not... Um it's not the magical solution people think it is. I think that people in the U.S. have been led to believe that if we would just increase taxes on the rich, then we could have a much broader social welfare system. Mm. Um, and the reality is is that uh, is that very so. So if you're if you are not terribly well off in the U.S., you really don't pay income taxes at all. Right. Right. Uh, in those countries, uh, you would be paying a much higher proportion of your income in tax uh, if you are if you are not well off. Well, everybody does, but you're talking about you know even even low income and middle income people paying a you know probably probably close to half of their income in taxes one way or the other. Uh, 
and that would be shocking to most people in the U.S. Yeah, it really would be. And Hunter, we have just about a minute left or so. Is it fair to say that maybe if socialism does work to some degree in some of the Scandinavian <laughs> countries, it's because the population base is pretty small and the people are pretty homogenous and there's a lot of resources to sort of go around and that's different than maybe a, a much larger and complex situation like the <clears throat> States? Well, yeah, the, the homogeneous population, social science research shows that you have a higher degree of trust um, and a higher degree of willingness uh, to have those kind of programs. That's true. Um, but the other thing is that they have gone away from that pretty sharply since mm. the 70s. Um, the economic model wasn't working, and they're, they're pretty darn capitalist today. Yeah, it is certainly an interesting world in which we live and how things are shifting, it seems, day to day. So thanks for joining us here, Hunter, and kind of helping us break down the results of Super Tuesday last night, talk a little bit about socialism and how it's different than the free giving of our Christian faith. So have a great day. Thank you. Take a short break here, wrap up the first hour of our show on Mornings with Carmen and preview what's up in hour two. So stay with us, more to come. Well, certainly one of the themes of the morning in the first hour of the show is the idea of having life more in the perspective of gift versus source. And when we do that, we can begin to open our hands a little bit more easily. And I don't know about you, but it seems like my hands begin to close pretty tightly in ways that I don't even know that they're doing until suddenly I'm feeling the stress and the anxiety and the turmoil and whatever it happens to be in life. But we open our hands and we begin to see the needs around us. And Paul Perot, certainly their first guest, and Daryl Crouch, Mm -hmm. uh, everyoneswilson.org, we can give as part of some of the Nashville devastation that's going on right now. Right. If you go to everyoneswilson.org, they do have a donate button. That's a GoFundMe page because uh, the areas around Nashville and to the east, he's in, I believe, Lebanon, which really got hit hard. Yeah, so. and part of, part of what Daryl Crouch is doing down there is represent, representative of what Hunter Baker was suggesting and the difference between the early Christian community that freely gave as people had need versus sort of mm-hmm. a forced or obligatory kind of giving. And that really demonstrates the heart of the kingdom. It really does, because it, it's from the bottom up. It's from the heart. It's yeah. organic. As the term is often used. Yeah, so if you're listening this morning and want to give, it's a great spot and a great tangible way to help some of our brothers and sisters in need in the Tennessee area. Well, up next here as we get going with Hour 2 on Mornings with Carmen, we'll be joined by Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com in studio. We're going to talk a little bit about the crash of the stock market related to the coronavirus and what we can anticipate here in the months ahead related to what's going on in, in those areas of our lives. So more to come here in Hour 2 on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.